This is the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. Each week, Penny shares proven ADHD parenting strategies and her hard-won ADHD mama wisdom. This is not your physician's podcast. Penny discusses the genuine grit of the moment-by-moment peaks and valleys of this special parenthood. It's time to beat the chaos and challenges of raising a child with ADHD. Here's your host, Penny Williams. Thanks for joining me today for the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I'm really excited because my friend Sarah Wayland is back again on the podcast. You might remember her from episode three, where we talked a lot about what your child's behavior is actually telling you, um, because behavior is communication. And that... um, That episode was so well-received, the most listened to episode so far, that I really felt like we needed to continue our discussions about how behavior is communication. I see so many parents who are saying, no matter what I do, I can't get this behavior to stop, my kid's angry all the time, all those sort of things, and, you know, it really boils down to what is the underlying reason? Because our kids' behavior is really them trying to communicate something to us that they are not equipped to communicate otherwise. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Sarah again first, and then we'll jump in. So this is going to be part two of Behavior is Communication, and we will actually have four sections in total for podcast episodes on this subject. Today's is determining causes and addressing lagging skills. So after a long career as a research psychologist studying spoken language, Sarah Whalen became a special needs care navigator with the goal of ensuring that no parent ever felt as lost and confused as she and her husband did when embarking on their journey as parents of two exceptional children with special needs. Nothing gives her more joy than teaching parents about effective strategies for raising their challenging children and working with individual clients as an RDI consultant. Sarah works to give other families what RDI and parenting classes gave her family, hope. In addition to teaching and working with individual clients, Sarah is co-editor of the book Technology Tools for Students with Autism and has written articles for the TUI newsletter, Washington Parent Magazine, the Gifted Homeschoolers Forum, and Extra Beacon. And you can certainly learn more about her on her website at guidingexceptionalparents.com. And of course, um, all the ways that you can connect with Sarah will be in the show notes at the end of the episode. So Sarah, I am really, really thankful that you are here with me again today on the podcast and that we get to talk more about how our kids' behavior is communication. They are trying to communicate something to us when they don't necessarily have the awareness or the communication skills to do it in a more neurotypical way. And I think that this is a concept that most parents of kids with ADHD are not aware of. You know, I think I learned this first from you um, in this way, probably four or five years ago, and my son was diagnosed almost nine years ago now. So I think it's really important for parents to have this parenting approach because it makes such a powerful difference for our kids and for us and the stress in the family. 
I so agree with you, Penny. And, you know, it can be really tough to be able to step back when you've got a kid who's raging at you about something. Sure. It can be so hard to remember he's just trying to tell me he can't do this right now. And, you know, some kids, you know, they'll do some pretty crazy things sure. when they're in that dysregulated state. Absolutely. And, and it's hard not to kind of counter-react, but to be able to step back and say, okay, what? how did we get here? What, what led to this? What's going on? Right. Um, you know, the way they express it is, you know, not, by the way, I really can't do this right now. Could you help me? Right. And I think it's really important to you to stress right at the outset that if you mirror your child's behavior, if you react to their anger with your own anger or frustration or, um, you know, yelling or whatever it might be, if you're mirroring their mood and behavior, you are going to escalate the situation. You are not helping. You are only making it worse. I think that's really important to point out because everything we're going to talk about today can be very powerful for parents, but you have to be calm in order for this to be effective. Yeah, I think Ross Green calls that counterproductive counterintensity. And yes. uh, it is a vicious cycle because it really does. Everybody just gets more and more reactive. And, you know, something that I think is important to remember just to have a little compassion for ourselves in that moment is that we are wired to respond in kind. So, you know, we no, have totally. these mirror neurons, right, that are set you know, they are designed to respond to what they see. So if they see a loving person coming at them with a big smile, you're wired to respond with a big smile and love in your heart. But if somebody is coming after you and yelling and screaming, we are wired to, to either run or to, you know, respond in kind to, to protect yeah. ourselves, right? Yeah, that's and a good so point. It's, it's like our default response is actually just the wrong response in this case. Yeah. Yeah, and it's hard for that not to be a right. response. You know, that's something that you really have to practice and work at, being detached emotionally from a situation that's happening with your child and not mirroring their emotions. It takes practice. You know, you can't say to yourself today, I am going to stay calm no matter what happens with my kid now and forevermore. It doesn't work like that. You know, right. we're all human. I've had a lot of practice, and I do pretty good. I think you would say the same for yourself, but there are certainly days where I lose it um, because we're human. But the exactly. point is just that you really have to stick with it, keep working at it. You will get better at staying calm, but that that's really um, kind of the underlying foundation to be able to use what you're learning from your child's behavior to improve behavior. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I think first we were going to talk about figuring out why your child is upset, um, kind of cluing in on that. That's obviously the first step. Yeah. And, you know, um, I, we talked about there's a, an article I wrote for Parenting ADHD and Autism um, a while back, I think it was published in October, which was about reasons for troublesome behavior in kids with autism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, went through this big long list of things that they do that 
you know, maybe you don't understand why they're doing it, um, but there are reasons why they might be doing it. Um, so just as an example, uh, the first one on the list is they behave in an uncaring or rude way. And mm-hmm. some of the possible reasons they might be coming across as uncaring or rude is that they're not able to pick up on the social expectations or norms of behavior, you know, and so they don't realize that, you know, by not turning and saying hi, when somebody says hi to them, they are coming across as rude. And then the other person gets mad at them for being rude. And they're like, I don't even know what's going on. And then they get frustrated. And, you know, that can lead to something. So this, um, you know, this, this post I wrote has, (laughs) 50 or more reasons um, why your kid might be doing stuff that looks really uh, weird to you that actually has a really uh, understandable reason behind it. Right. Um, So, yeah, you know, one of the things I like about that chart is that it makes you, it just gives you some places to look. So It's a good reference tool, yeah. Right, and, you know, not every kid is going to be have, you know, missing all those skills, but your kid might, you know, it might be that one thing in that list of 20 that is driving that particular behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'll put a link on it on that, uh, show notes to go to that chart. And there's actually a downloadable version that people can print off and have as a reference because you can look at what situation is coming up for you again and again, like, I think my child's being rude all the time and look at that chart and already have some ideas of what the underlying reasons are um, that you can address to try to change it. And I think it's a good idea to point out too that ADHD and autism are not character flaws. So, you know, when you think your child's being rude or, you know, they get angry over something that they shouldn't, all of those things, you know, in society we think of as character flaws. You know, if your child's lying to you, there's probably a good reason because they have a developmental disorder. Um, So it's not necessarily a kind of a mark on their character. And I think that, you know, we all grow up so programmed to think that rudeness and lying and um, deceiving people and all of these things are character flaws, you know, they're personality flaws. And they're, they're not necessarily, you know, for our kids, there are underlying reasons why those things could happen. Now, our kids certainly could be defiant just to be defiant one day, like a neurotypical kid their age. But, you know, a lot of people say, well, I don't, I have a teen and I can't tell if it's teen behavior or if it's the ADHD. Well, one good rule of thumb that a therapist told me a long time ago was that your child with ADHD is going to have the same amount of these kind of behaviors as a neurotypical kid would. So as a teen, my son is going to have basically the same amount of just teen willful behavior. If there's more than that, if there's more volume to it than a typical teenager, then it's probably due to his developmental disabilities and there's a reason for it. I think that's a good rule of thumb for parents um, because we often all, I think, struggle with sometimes, is it really something they can't help or are they just being a kid? 
You know, I, I will just offer, Penny, that um, I, I absolutely agree with that. And something that's hard for me, I don't have any kids who don't have developmental differences. Right. And so I don't know what's normal. You know, I don't know what's a normal level of, of reactivity for, um, you know, a, a typically developing kid. But I can tell you that if I just always treat the reactivity as if it's, you know, there's a reason for it and I just need to understand it better, then um, that works for typical kids too. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. so you can just say, whoa, that was a huge reaction. What's up? Right. You know, and and just try to get to the bottom of it. And, you know, typical teens certainly <laughs> can have big reactions to things. But yep. um, but you know what? They often have reasons for it that make sense once you understand what they are. Yeah. I mean, they're they're kind of in that spot where they're supposed to be independent. They want to be independent. but They don't yet quite have the skills and the maturity yet to pull it off. And, you know, I think. It goes back to showing empathy and validation and how powerful that can be in our parenting. And, and that's true for all kids, not just kids with disabilities. Right. I think, the, I think you're right, though, that the intensity of it can be even, <laughs> even more, mm -hmm. um, you know, dramatic when you have a kid with a disability. And especially if the disability is in the area of emotion regulation, which is part of ADHD for sure. Right. Yeah. yeah, so figuring out why your child is upset. Do you want to walk us through kind of that process of how we're going to go from an outburst to really drilling down to the reason for it and how to address it? So, yeah, you know, one of the things that I think we talked about in the last um, the last episode is, um, you know, is the fact that um, when your kid is is flooded and having a big, huge emotion, mm -hmm. that is not the time to try to figure out what's going on. Like one of the things you have to do is in the moment, if they are spewing terrible invectives your way, you know, right. and saying these awful things to you, or, you know, if they're throwing stuff or whatever, like, you know, that moment you need to understand is, is all you can do is keep everybody safe. And right. furthermore, any language you use in that moment is likely to set them off even more mm -hmm. because what's going on with them is that um, you know, the, the, it, it, we're in reptilian hindbrain mode, right? We are just in fight, flight, or freeze. And so there's no rational processing going on. And you need to have all parts of your brain working in order to understand language. So, you know, I, the first thing I would say is back off and, you know, try to, you know, let them know you're there for them to the extent that you can stay safe. And then, um, you know, and then, um, kind of work on it later when they're more, right, when everyone's well, calm, has some include, distance, including you. <laughs> mm -hmm, exactly. Yeah. I yeah. mean, everybody has to be a calm participant and I think it's not even just getting calm, but it's kind of having some distance and time for reflection too, I think is important. 
you know, if my son calms down all by, you know, he likes to be left alone. If he's emotional, he wants to be left alone. There's no amount of rationalizing in the world that's going to help. I learned the hard way. And now I know that it's because his brain is flooded and, you know, he can't even process and think about what I'm trying to say, which makes a lot of sense, but he's just not hearing it in that moment and can't. Um, And once I leave him alone and he's calm, you know, I don't hear things slamming in his room anymore. If I go back in right at that moment, it's still too soon. Yep. (laughs) Like he still needs some time where he has been able to reflect and go, you know, I shouldn't have acted that way. I shouldn't have screamed at my mom. And usually he comes to me and apologizes. And that's kind of my trigger to know that we're getting to the point where we can discuss it and figure out how to do it a little differently next time for better outcomes. And you know, Penny, something I often do, because sometimes even with the apology, it's too soon to talk about it because they recognize fully. I I can't think of a case where this wasn't true, but they recognize that they, they really did you know, they were out of control and they, they right. were doing things that they are not proud of and they don't want to think about it because I think there there's a lot of self-blaming that goes on. Totally. And so if you dive in right at that moment, all they hear is, yeah, I'm broken, you know, mm-hmm. and, and yeah, I'm a bad person. And, and that just shuts them down again. So I find what I'll do is I'll say something when they come and you're right, you know, when they come for the apology, then I'll say, you know, I forgive you. And I'd really like to talk about what happened. You know, maybe tomorrow we can make an appointment to talk about what happened and Mm. go over it at that time. Good idea. Uh, And that way we can, you know, that way they, they know I've accepted their apology. They know I'm not going to push them right now because chances are they really are still fragile, but they also know that it's something we do need to talk about. And usually by the next day, I'm calm enough that I can, I can be right. a micro person during the conversation. So Yeah. And maybe make a note for yourself or something. I always feel like if I don't For one, I don't like unresolved things, so I don't Mm -hmm. like dragging it out forever. I want to figure it out right away. Like, that's just my personality. Um, And the other thing is I'm always afraid I'm going to forget. If I let something go, I'm going to forget to ever talk about it. So writing yourself a note is a really good um, way to remember that you need to circle back. Yeah, I actually usually make an appointment. So I I will say something like, you know, could we talk about this maybe tomorrow after you get home from school and have had your snack? You know, can we just set aside some time at four o'clock to talk about this Um, and then, you know, get it into the calendar? Um, Yeah. Because like you, I would forget if I, if I just leave it nebulous, I will totally forget. But if I make an appointment with them, then I won't forget. And, you know, I did want to mention, you just said, um, the thing about, you know, you want to resolve things and I'm like you, I have this need for closure. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I first got married, I was, um, reading Dear Abby or one of their Ann Landers or something like that. And, uh, they said, you know, never go to sleep on a problem. And I thought, oh, that's so smart. And so I was constantly like I I would I would stay up and, you know, make my husband talk things through with me until it was resolved so that we did not go to sleep on bad feelings. And I had to rewrite that rule with my kids because, 
because when they're tired, they can't talk. And, you know, my husband was able to pull himself together because he knew it was important to me, but kids can't do that. And so if they're tired or they're still fragile, that's not the time to talk. So I had to let go of that advice, even though I do think it's pretty good advice. But sometimes you really do have to wait until everybody's actually ready to talk. Yeah, and the later you get in the day, the more spent our kids are. Um, I know you and I have talked about spoon theory before, and I'm really aware of it because of my fibromyalgia, that's a big talking point in that community is that, you know, you get up in the morning and you have so many spoons, a handful of spoons. And each time you have to do something that expends energy, you're losing a spoon. So, you know, how do you get to the end of the day and still have a spoon, you know, that one last spoon at the end that you needed? Um, And for our kids who don't regulate very well, it's, you know, once their spoons are gone, we just have to kind of back off and say, you know, there's always tomorrow and yeah. not be so pushy and pressury. And I think that's part of the reason that a lot of kids don't do well with homework when they have ADHD, when they leave it to the end of the day. They're just <laughs> already spent. I mean, they just don't have the cognitive power to focus on it and do a good job on it. Um, We often think that it's because their medicine is worn off for the kids who take stimulant medication, but I think that's only one piece of it, and there's, you know, there's a lot else to it, and, you know, the longer they go through the day, the more stressors they encounter, and spoons are spent, and so I think it's really important to think about that, too, that the end of the day is probably not a good time for our kids for much of anything, really. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that. So, you know, we've, we've, we've talked now about, you know, so what, what to do in the moment and sort of how to set things up for a conversation. But the original question you asked was, how do we figure out what's going on for your kid? Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, the, the, the first person to ask, of course, is the child themselves. But I did want to mention that sometimes kids are really unaware of what's driving their own behavior. So sometimes you have to give them some clues and ask, you know, does this seem like it might be a thing? Um, Mm -hmm. But to ask too, when you think, like I realized over time that a lot of times I could have asked my son and he could have communicated very simply to me what was bothering him, but I assumed that he was not self-aware enough. I assumed that right. um, he must not know what he's doing or whatever. And and I think just in general as parents, we often don't ask our kids because we're kind of brought up to be authoritarian and mm. whatever I say goes and you do it. And, and so kind of unwriting that rule and looking at, um, you know, just asking them, even little kids, I've been really surprised that, you know, three and four year olds, even you would think that they really couldn't express much to you that was meaningful, but they can. Um, And I think, you know, it's really, really important to ask, even if you feel absolutely certain that they are not going to be able to give you any (laughs) real information, nothing that, you know, is usable, ask the question anyway, because even if they can't, asking the question is validating their feelings and showing them that you care. So it's meaningful in more than one way. Um, but I think a lot of parents will be really surprised with how often kids have some really good insights when we don't expect them to. 
Totally agree. And, uh, you know, I think, I think your point about, you know, the kid knowing that you care about their perspective is so important um, because it, it sets an expectation that we want them to develop that self-awareness and that we think they're capable of it, mm-hmm. um, which I think is very important for them in motivating them to develop that self-awareness. Um, and, and you're so right. I mean, I, you know, I, <laughs> when I teach my parenting class, one of the things that I say when we talk about collaborative problem solving is, you know, when, when a kid says something kind of crazy, believe them, you know, if they say something and it just sounds totally bizarre to you, like try to understand what they're saying to you because they are telling you what's true for them. So, Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. So I think, I think, you know, your, your point is extremely well taken. And, you know, Ross Green himself says that the process of learning how to describe what's going on internally is part of the solution. Yeah, that's good. So, you that's know, that's, yeah. So, you know, asking your child what's going on for you, that forces them to step back and be self-reflective and, um, and think about it. But, you know, if they know that you are taking their point of view into account and valuing their perspective, they're going to they're going to be more bought into whatever solution the two of you end up coming up with. Mm-hmm. And I think, too, what what you were talking about um, with believing what they're telling you, even if it's far fetched, you know, that was a lesson I had to learn with my son lying a lot is Mm. that a lot of the times the tall tales that he told was the way that he expressed how it felt for him and Mm. what was true for him in that moment. Um, An example I use all the time. One day he came in, slammed his stuff around, you know, after school, totally angry and upset. And he said, this boy tried to kill me on the playground today. And my first instinct was to go, no, he didn't. You know, you've lost your mind. I don't believe you. But when I had more information about what that really means um, and could step back and say, okay, why is he telling me that a kid almost killed him on the playground? Well, because he was probably so upset and so emotional and so scared that for him, as a hypersensitive kid, that's what it felt like, or that's what his fear was in that moment. Um, and and we get so upset about our kids lying to us and telling stories, and we really have to take a step back and try to look at it from from their point of view as much as possible and find the truth that's in there. Because, you know, I think most of the time, unless they're writing fiction novels, there's some truth in it. And I think, you know, a lot of fiction authors will tell you that they pull things from their own life and their <laughs> own world and their own experiences. You know, it's real hard to completely make up something that has nothing to do with anything we know or experience. So, you know, I think there's always nuggets of truth, even if it feels really far-fetched. And that goes back to, you know, believe what they say and try to interpret it if you need to. Yeah, you know, that's such an important point, Penny, um, because, uh, you know, A, that is how it feels to them. 
B, there's another thing, which is that sometimes the language that they use to describe something um, is not the language we as adults might use. And so, you know, when you were telling your story about your son, it reminded me of this crazy story that happened to my son where he kept coming home from school and saying, the teacher is beating me up. And I was like, mm-hmm. I was like, what? And, and, you know, I just could not figure it out. And I would ask his teachers and I would say, you know, he's reporting this. And I know kid views on things are different than adult views. And I just need to understand what was going on in this case. And they were like, well, he didn't know how to do it. And so then we were trying to coach him to teach him how to do it. And I was like, what is going on with that? And then at some point I realized that very often when he he gets down on himself, I'll say, ah, kid, don't beat yourself up. Mm -hmm. And he thought that 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 feeling that I'm less than perfect meant that he was getting beat up. Right. He was very literal. He was very literal. Well, in a funny way, because he actually didn't know what getting beat up was. And so I had gone to find, I I finally went to the (laughs) to YouTube and found this crazy scene from um, a movie, a really awful fight scene where these two characters are beating the tar out of each other. And, you know, and, and, you know, they end up like on the ground bloody and, and, you know, and I, I said, okay, this is what beating someone up looks like. Yeah. And so I showed him this video and he was horrified. Mm, and he said, of course. he said, Oh no, my teachers aren't doing that. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, sometimes it's just a misunderstanding that leads to them saying these crazy things. Yeah, it's like we talked about on the last podcast episode um, with the compassionate dad. He said, be a student of your child. Um, You know, look at their behavior and learn from it. What is it trying to tell you? What can you discern and and you by kind of being a detective and and digging into that further were able to realize where the disconnect was and you were able to address it um so it's really important I think just a real awareness of our kids and um a lot of the potential reasons behind their behaviors can be really um insightful for us and help us address things in the right way Yeah. And, you know, that gets to, um, you know, other reasons why your kids might have a big reaction. So, you know, if you say, you know, if I had said to my son, well, there's no bruises on you and they have a lot of strict guidelines in place at school. So I'm pretty sure your teachers are not beating you up. He would have gotten furious with me Mm -hmm. and he would have said, no, I'm telling you they're beating me up because that's what he understood. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, by taking it seriously and trying to understand what he was trying to communicate to me, then I wasn't accusing him of lying. You know, when you accuse a child of a moral failing and they really don't think they're doing it, that can make them pretty upset. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. My son gets upset with me all the time and says, you just don't trust me. You know, I'm trying to get him to really use the iPad for school in place of paper and pencil because, for years, we have had many a missed assignment, lost assignment. Last year, we were doing assignments two to five times each oh. on many assignments. And I said, that's it. We have got to do something different for this kid who has zero executive functioning skills. And 
he pushes back on that because one, he doesn't want to be different, but he sees it as me not trusting that he's capable. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, just yesterday after school, we had this long discussion about how it doesn't mean that I don't trust him and it doesn't mean that I don't think he can do it. He just needs to do it in a different way than other kids do it. So it's not so much work for him. Um, So he's not doing things three and four times. Um, and and it's still kind of a struggle for us. I still have not quite cracked through on that one, and and helped him under to help him understand that I. It's not a matter of not thinking he can do it. We know he can do it, um, and it's not a failing if he loses papers. And I'm sure you know that message has been loud and clear to him at school for years mm-hmm. now. That if you lose your paper, that is a failing. But you know, for him, it's a different thing, and. So, you know, there's some conflicting messages there, too, as as to what that behavior means and what that struggle means. And um, it's been difficult. But I think, you know, understanding his perspective on that, that he really thinks that I don't trust him is helping me to reframe those conversations with him so that he realizes that it's more about giving him a tool to make things easier than saying that he can't do it, so he has to do it differently. Boy, that's such a tricky conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, and and you know, I think I think you're right. Your kids get like you can be giving them one message at home, and you could even be perfect about delivering that message that we're all different. We all have strengths and weaknesses, and mine are in this area. Yours yep. are in that area. You can be really great about that at home. And then they go to school and the teacher's like, I can't believe you, you know, can't turn your silly paper in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then they get this message from the teacher that it's a moral failing and they're trying so hard and you're trying so hard, but they know what other people are thinking. They're not stupid. Yeah. And so, you know, they're, they get that message loud and clear. And I would argue that if other kids are having trouble turning in their homework, maybe that's something the teacher should be looking at is that what's getting in everybody's way. Right. Yeah. There's so much trying to teach accountability and responsibility as kids get older in school and they just teachers in general, our school system in general, doesn't take into account that not everyone has great executive functioning skills. Not everyone can plan and organize. Um, And so those kids fall through the cracks. Those are the ones who fail. And, you know, I was looking at his grades um, on Monday. I have set up this weekly email of his grades out of the um, online grading system so that I don't forget to look and we keep track and I noticed that there were a lot of zeros for Mm. missing things in every class, I think, every core class. But what I noticed aside from that was that all his quizzes and tests, he was getting mostly A's. Wow. So it's not that he's not learning the material. He's learning. He can show you that he's learning, but he's not great with homework and he's not great with managing all of his paper and his work. And, you know, he's got like three classes in ninth grade that all have notebook check grades consistently. And that's already been an issue with trying to have him organized enough in his iPad even to do that. But I'm kind of getting off topic here, but I just wanted to say, you know, that our kids certainly see our actions to them. Um, 
in a different way than we intend a lot. And it's really important to, again, be a detective and, and really figure out why they're getting so upset. You know, he was yelling at me yesterday during this conversation about how he really doesn't need to put all his paper and worksheets in his iPad. It's time consuming and he hates taking the picture and he was making all these excuses in the world. And Finally, you know, we get to the point where I realize that he thinks that, you know, we're saying that he can't do it. Um, and and by then, you know, he was about to explode and we both had to walk away and take a break for a while and agree to disagree for the time being. Um, but eventually, you know, I understand now his perspective. Eventually, I'll get him to understand my perspective and then we'll be okay. And you know, Penny, sometimes, especially when you get into the teenage years, you do have to let them learn, you know, the way they the hard need way. to learn, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, with my son, he refused to take his extended time on his tests because it was hard to arrange. And so what I finally did is I said, can you just do me a favor? Let's do a science experiment. You take extended time on this test and don't take it on that test. And let's see how you do on those two tests. Mm-hmm. And then when he came back and he had gotten 100 on the extended time test and he had gotten a 50 on the not extended time test, he was like, yeah, it really did make a difference. But I let him put the pieces together himself right? and didn't force him to do it the way I thought was right. I was like, okay, you've got to prove this to yourself. And even with that data in hand, he still didn't want to take extended time because as you said, he didn't want to look different. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, that was a thing we worked on all through high school and, and his grades did take a hit for it, you know, and, and I just had to say, you know what, he needs to learn, you know, he needs to figure out, like, is he going to be a kid who takes the accommodations or not? Like, that's a decision he has to make. It's his life, and he gets right. to make those choices. Um, and he's the only one who can advocate for himself once right. he gets out of high school. You know, kids in college, yeah. we do all this for them for 13 years, and then when they get to college, they have to do it for themselves. The college will not talk to us about their accommodations. Um, they have to take the initiative, and they have to go, and they have to ask for it. So, you know, that's something that... Um, Rob Tudisco has been talking a lot about lately, kind of a passion of his is that once they hit the teen years, we really have to pull them into that process and teach them how to advocate for themselves. And, you know, a lot of kids don't want to go to the IEP meetings. It's not fun for them any more than it's fun for us. But, (laughs) you know, it's part of that process of, of preparing them to live on their own later on and succeed. Right. Right. And I'm living that right now. My older son is in college and this is the one who didn't take extended time. And I did have a little victory, which is his first physics test. He did get extended time on it and, you know, took took the time, did all the arranging with the Department of Disabilities. And and I was really proud of him. And he actually messed up. He didn't ask for enough extended time and it hurt. But he understood it, and he. I, I was really proud of him. I was That's really awesome. proud of him. Yeah, because you know he's eight mile, He's eight hour drive away from here. I can't help him. You know. Yeah, and and that makes a good point for our audience too. Is that it does get better. <laughs> like you know, a kid with ADHD or autism is going to struggle in life. Um, 
but it does get better over time. You know, a lot of parents, when their kids are six, seven, eight, nine years old, it feels like the end of the world and it's never going to get better. I can remember it vividly. Um, and as they grow up, it gets better, not perfect, but you know, it, it improves. Um, and it changes, you know, struggles you have when your kid's nine, you won't have when they're 16, but you'll have all new struggles when they're 16, you know, <laughs> you just trade one for the other. But, you know, it, your story offers hope to other parents that our kids will kick in eventually and do for themselves and do what they need to do. You know, we're battling right now, freshman year of high school, that, um, there's just no motivation. He could care less about doing the work. He has zero motivation and he tries his darndest to get out of doing everything. And I, you know, already he's in ninth grade. I'm already going, okay, he's not going to be able to do college. And I can't do that yet because I know that things are going to get better. We're going to keep working on it. We're going to keep changing. And he doesn't have to do college. You know, he has to find his path, but it's not that it's, not possible because in the third month of ninth grade, he has no motivation <laughs> to do schoolwork. You know, well, you really have to, where, where I at least am quite the catastrophizer. I am the queen bee of catastrophizing. <laughs> so I'll, you know, right off the bat, I take something and I go all the way to Z with it. You know, everything that that could mean that's, that's bad. Um, and I have to really be mindful and catch myself doing that. But, you know, that's something too that I think can be more painful for our kids if we tell them, oh, well, if you can't do this now, you're not going to be able to do it. What are you going to do when you have a job? Which I actually pulled out on my son yesterday and I shouldn't have, but you know, we all make mistakes. And he said, you know, sometimes I just don't want to do things. And I said, well, if you're at a job and you decide today you don't want to do things, what's going to happen? And he's perfectly aware of what's going to happen. And I think, you know, that's a much more serious situation. And that's off, uh, also way in the future. And he can't even equate that right now. I can equate that. But for him, just deciding that he just really doesn't want to do schoolwork today doesn't mean that he's going to get fired from every job because he's going to be lazy and not want to do the work, right? And so, you know, I think we, we're a detective and we get to all these little tidbits and we want to address them, but we also have to be careful to be really realistic in that as well um, and think about where our kids are today developmentally and what their needs are today, and focus more on the here and now. You know, our kids focus on the here and now, and they can't see the future, where as parents, we're looking way out in the future and trying to, you know, set them up for wild success in 10 or 20 years. And, you know, we need to take a, a play out of their playbook and say, okay, today, what do we need to do today to be yeah. successful today? And maybe tomorrow. And just, you know, it's baby steps. Penny, this is like, it's so important. And I think there, there are two parts to it. The catastrophizing thing is huge deal. It's a huge deal mm -hmm. for me. I'm, I'm also a queen catastrophizer. And my kids will tell you that. Um, and I have to, I just have to make myself stop. But the other point you were making, which is where are they right now? Mm -hmm. What, what are they capable of right now? And I don't mean what does the school think they should be capable of right now? Or what does grandpa think he should be capable of right now? I mean, what is he actually capable of right now? 
And how right. can I push just enough so that he will feel successful and feel like this is hard, but I can do it as opposed to this is impossible and there's no way I can do it. Right. I'm not even going to try. Right. And, you know, so one of the things that is really tough as our kids get older is that the expectations of the environment, you know, expectations for a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old are, you know, very different. And if that rule of thumb they have that your kids is at, you know, your kid is at two-thirds, um, you know, of the age, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of their executive functioning skills as, you know, another kid. Well, if you're 15, you have the executive functioning skills of a 10 year old, then yeah. your demands should be the demands for a 10 or an 11 year old. Exactly. And not demands for a 15 year old, but good luck convincing a school Exactly. Yeah. Difficult. And even a lot of parents really struggle with accepting that. You know, it's really hard because you know one example I use a lot is my son is almost fifteen. He will cry about things that no fourteen, fifteen-year-old should cry about. But he's hypersensitive. He's super intense, and that's what happens because in those areas he's really only ten or eleven, and so the way that I choose to react, respond, and handle that has to be based on the fact that emotionally he's 10 or 11. If I treat him like he's should be able to have the skills of a 14-year-old in that instance, I'm going to say very hurtful things to him. He is going to feel like I'm not on his side. I don't care. I have no empathy and compassion and that somehow he's broken. You know, you, you really just just in making that um, mental difference between calendar age and developmental age and basing your response on that developmental age is a huge difference for our kids. And it puts us in the right frame of mind to be more helpful and effective. Um, you know, nobody wants to damage their child, but if I would say to him, you're such a crybaby, you're way too old to act like this, get it together, what is that going to do? Nothing but hurt him. It's not, you know, tough love has its place, but in instances like that, it has no place um, because it doesn't take into account developmental age. Right. <coughs> Excuse me, and right. skills. Yeah. Yeah, and so, you know, I think, I think that... Uh, And when our kids encounter these unfair demands and realize that, I mean, you know, I could imagine that, um, you know, your son realizing that he's getting upset about things and the other kids think he's weird for getting upset Mm -hmm. about them, that might make him feel pretty crummy about himself, too. Mm -hmm. And um, And then his parents get upset and it just piles on. Like nobody understands me. Mm -hmm. Nobody understands me. And that'll make a kid mad, too, because they feel like no matter what they say or what they do, it doesn't matter because nobody gets them. And, you know, teenagers already feel alienated enough. Right. Um, No, I think that's the, the cause of a lot of misbehavior in our kids is being misunderstood, being aware that they're misunderstood and feeling like they have no power to change that. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So I think, you know, figuring out where is your kid, not, you know, not where society thinks they should be, but where Mm -hmm. is this particular kid that will help reduce, 
you know, some of these outbursts, you know, because, you know, if, if somebody said to me, Sarah, you need to go do, you know, a series of cartwheels down the middle of your street, I would be like, no, <laughs> I'm not right. going to do that. I would get kind of defiant. And why is that? I could go out there and I could try to do a cartwheel, but I can guarantee you it would not look good. And, um, you know, I'd look like a, an idiot. So why would I put myself in that situation? I'd much rather be defiant and say, no, I'm not going to do it. Um, mm-hmm. than, than to look like a moron in front of everybody. So mm-hmm. yeah. Avoiding pain is another big one yeah. for our kids and, and yeah. outbursts. I think, you know, because again, we don't understand, you know, any woman should be able to go out into the street and do 10 cartwheels down the middle of it. I mean, that's kind of what we're saying to our kids a lot of times is, well, you're 14, you should be able to do this. And that is really devastating. And then that gets their guard up. Then they're protecting themselves from being hurt. Um, And that comes across in anger or rage or any number of other behaviors, defiance and refusing to do what they're asked and follow instructions, you know. The list goes on and on, but I think it's really important that once you start really trying to understand your child, where they are, how their ADHD is impacting their whole life, emotional, school, social, all of it, then you can really start to see more of what they're communicating through their behavior. It's not as hard to distinguish what might be happening underneath. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the other thing is that some kids really don't have the ability to regulate their emotions Mm -hmm. and express themselves in a constructive way. They just don't have the, the ability to do that. And so one of the things we have to do as parents is help teach them, you know, okay, you're having a big emotion. What's an appropriate way to express that? And like, you know, my sister uh, had this thing that she did in her house for a while where they had cubes and each face of the cube had a different color on it. And uh, when they were starting to feel upset, they would go over to the fireplace and they would turn the cube so that the red side was out mm-hmm. and everybody would know, uh oh, <laughs> you know, this, this person yep. is not feeling good right now. So I need to treat them with kid gloves. Didn't require language didn't require anything other than saying, Hey, I'm feeling upset. And, you know, and people knew, okay, let's, let's be nice right now because this person is not in a place that they can express things. But um, that's very similar to, to the zones of regulation. They use the kind of traffic light colors and, and visuals to be able to express, you know, what zone you're in, how you're feeling, and then how you can move into a different zone. So that's really interesting. I'd never thought about, you know, making zones cubes for kids you know I thought it was brilliant and it it was actually they were doing it long before I ever learned about the zones of regulation so whoever came up with it gets a prize (laughs) yeah that was a good one for sure and so easy you know it's non-confrontational kids can express how they're feeling no matter what and you know they don't have to have a conversation about it necessarily or anything like that but they are you know we're we're constantly encouraging our kids to let us know how they're feeling and what the reason is for their behavior and we have to give them the tools to be able to do that appropriately and that's not just 
by saying three or four sentences verbally for every kid. And so, <laughs> you know, it could be the zones of regulation po- poster and they point it out. It could be um, a block with different colors. You know, we can get very creative with that and give them whatever tool is going to work for them in those situations to be able to communicate better. And then, you know, you're diffusing some of that behavior that's unwanted. Right. Right. And so, you know, teaching them how to express, you know, themselves in a way that isn't taking everyone down with them, I think is really right. good. I, you know, it's a good thing to do. So teaching them those self-regulation skills can really help them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, another thing we haven't been talking about that I think is really important is um, our kids' expectations for themselves and how they feel when they fall short. So, you know, my, my son uh, <laughs> had this idea for a long time. I think he's getting better finally at 15. Um, but he had this idea that he was supposed to know how to do everything without having to learn how to do it. Mm, yeah, we've so, gone through some of that phase. Yeah. So, you know, he would I, – <laughs> I used to joke like in third grade, you know, he would be working on an assignment. He'd write something wrong. He'd try to erase the mistake. He was so mad when he was erasing that he'd like, you know, tear the paper. Mm-hmm. Then he'd get mad about tearing the paper, rumple it up, throw throw it away and say, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And it was all because, you know, he he put, you know, the, the tail on his G was the wrong shape. <laughs> and, oh, my gosh. And, you know, and, and but he had this expectation that he was going to be perfect every single time. And he couldn't accept that he was a less than perfect person and that would flip him into a rage and you know we kept saying well sweetie none of us are perfect people like we all have to learn but you know your kids look at you and you have a clue you know how to fix dinner you know how to write a g with the tail the right way and you know they don't see you making those mistakes because of course you made those same mistakes when you were in third grade but you're not making them now that you're a grown-up but they don't know all that learning that happened in between there and so they somehow have this idea that they're supposed to just be fully formed you know right and a big thing that a lot of parenting experts talk about is letting your kids see you make mistakes, you know? Yeah. If you make a mistake, point it out to them. They need to see that everybody makes mistake, mistakes, that their parents are human, um, because it takes a little bit of that pressure off for kids, especially kids who are perfectionists. Yep, yep. It's it's. I think it is really good. And, you know, one of the things... I also wanted to make sure we, we touch on um, during this, this particular podcast is just, you know, how do you deal with those big emotions in the moment to kind of help diffuse them? And we talked about not talking to your kid or not expecting them to talk. Um, and, um, you know, the other thing is, is I just expressing empathy, which for me, you know, <laughs> it's funny, you were talking earlier about how, you know, your, your son said, you know, I don't feel like doing this right now. And you're thinking to yourself, well, what are you going to do when you grow up and, you know, have right. a job, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, instead, like, I, I have that too. I can remember when my son was a baby and he was screaming about something and I thought, yeah, I think it's tough now. <laughs> right. Wait. <laughs> you just wait. <laughs> it just gets better. Mm. And, uh, and uh, but, you know, 
but that, of course, that's not a reasonable thing to do. But if you express empathy instead in that moment, you know, oh, you know, you know, when when your son didn't feel like doing it right now, oh, you know, are you tired after a long day at school? Do you need a break right now? Or, mm-hmm. you know, just a little empathy to try to understand, no matter how silly it sounds to you. Um, I have found that that does a world of good to help my kid calm down more quickly. And it gets back to that point that you were talking about earlier about how our kids need to feel understood. And I, you know, I really feel that if you can appropriately express the empathy, you know, last night my son was really upset because, um, because he got tired at the end of the day and he hadn't done his homework and he, and he just, he couldn't, it was just not going to happen. And, you know, I was, I was kind of mad because I told him to do his homework and he didn't do it all day. And then he put it off to the end of the day Mm -hmm. and then he was tired. And I was like, but he was mad at himself about it. And I said, you know, instead of saying, I told you so, which is what I wanted to say, you know, I said, Oh, I'm so sorry that, you know, that this happened and you put it off till you're now you're exhausted and you can't do it. And your teacher's probably going to be upset. And, um, yeah, that's really awful. I'm so sorry, you know, and saying that, like, he was like, yeah, I really messed up instead of like, if I had just said, well, you know, if you had done what I told you to do, he would have flown off the handle and been mad at me instead of being self-reflective and saying, yeah, tomorrow I'm going to try and do a better job. Right. Right. Yeah. It all depends on how we react. We can either fuel the fire or, you know, throw some water on it and diffuse it. So, right. Um, I was just looking through our list here to see if there's anything else we wanted to talk about on this portion of the behaviors communication series. We have about three minutes left. If there's anything else that you want to add. There is. Uh, One of the things that we talked about was that sometimes what people are saying is not actually what they're feeling. So, uh, you know, an example is my son maybe, you know, this didn't happen last night, but my son might have said something like, uh, I hate you. Mm -hmm. That's um, just what I was thinking. Because he hadn't finished his homework. I hate you. Mm -hmm. And what he's really saying is I'm disappointed in myself. And I know you were telling me the right thing and I'm feeling really a lot of self-loathing right now. And so the ver- the words he's saying and what he's expressing are hatred of me, but the underlying emotion is shame. Right. And so if I can address that and say, well, you know, I know you'll try and do better tomorrow instead of saying, you know, how can you hate me? You know, I'm your mother. I brought you into this world. You know, like, so if I addressed his words, I wouldn't be getting at that underlying emotion that he's feeling. And that, that also, and that's hard to do because sometimes you really have no idea what the underlying emotion is. But I think remembering that sometimes the outward expression of what's going on may be very different than the underlying emotion. Yeah, and that's really the whole foundation of behavior is communication is that what behavior looks like is not necessarily what they are feeling and trying to communicate. Um, that we can't necessarily take things as face value when we raise kids with ADHD or autism. You know, we really have to be very open minded to think through things more deeply 
um, when they happen. You know, for a neurotypical kid who gets mad at me because I wanted to make him do his homework, um, you know, he's angry because he doesn't want to do his homework probably, or he's too (laughs) tired. But, you know, for a kid who has ADHD and autism and is behind developmentally, there can be a much deeper um, message behind that behavior. And that's, I think, what you and I are really trying to teach other parents is that you have to question it more, take a step back and say, okay, this is what it looks like on the surface. It looks like my kid doesn't want to do his homework and, um, you know, he's just being lazy. But what is it really? Is it that it's overwhelming? Is it that his dysgraphia makes it so he doesn't want to do this writing and the summary of our article? Is it because he's too tired? Is it because he's hungry because we haven't had dinner yet? Um, You know, it can be so many different things and it can be a combination of a lot of those things. So it's just really important to take that step back ourselves and, and start questioning what else could this be? Yeah. Be a detective. Yep. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, we've mentioned Ross Green a few times in this episode. He is the author of The Explosive Child. For those listeners who don't know, Sarah and I are his um, leaders of his fan club, obviously. <laughs> I'm not sure. There might be. I think we're on episode 13 now, so there might be an episode where I didn't mention him, but I doubt it because, <laughs> you know, his collaborative problem solving and his insights are just monumentally powerful and have changed my parenting and my family. And so, you know, that's kind of the basis of everything I teach pulls off of, you know, what he has put together in this collaboration. And I think, you know, in another behaviors communication episode, we can talk more about collaborating because I think that's a big part of diffusing anger and, um, and not even getting to that point is when we have a collaborative relationship with our kids rather than I'm your parent and you're my kid and you do what I say, which is, you know, the traditional parenting dynamic, but it doesn't work for our kids at all. Um, And so, you know, that's a big one as far as what spurs behavior and what they might be trying to communicate that we should definitely delve into in one of the next two episodes that we do together in this series. Sounds great. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today and for doing a whole series on behaviors communication. I just think it's going to be super valuable for the podcast listeners. And, you know, I see so many questions come up from parents and forums and Facebook groups. And, and you know, 80% of the time, my response is behaviors communication. What are they trying to tell you? Let's figure out what they're trying to tell you, you know, because it's just so important. It's, it's really the everything of parenting kids like ours effectively. So I'm really excited that we're going to do a series. I think you and I both could talk for days on end about this topic, but we'll try to keep it to four episodes, four hours. (laughs) Um, But I know that it's going to be super helpful. So I am 
very grateful to you for sharing your wisdom with the audience. And we will definitely talk again soon. Um, Of course, if you want to connect with Sarah, if you want um, links to any of the resources that we talked about, um, especially that chart that Sarah put together of what behavior looks like and what might be the underlying triggers for it, um, go to the show notes on the website and you will be able to um, access all of that information um, and that's parenting ADHD and autism.com slash listen to get to the podcast page and you'll find the episode there so with that we will finish for this episode of the parenting ADHD podcast and I will see you next time Thanks for listening to the Parenting ADHD Podcast with Penny Williams. If you like what you just heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Visit the website, parentingadhdandautism.com for so much more on successfully raising kids with ADHD. Be sure to check out the podcast section as well for previous shows. Join us next time for more parenting strategies and insights that actually work for kids with ADHD.